Have you ever had to write a note of encouragement? Someone that you know has had a, just a really tough time. Uh, maybe something specific has happened in their lives, a loss. Um, or maybe nothing specific happened. Every now and again, I meet these strange people that literally just enjoy writing notes to people for no reason whatsoever, just to, to encourage them. I find them to be some of the most precious and special people in the world, and I'm not anything like them. But if, if you did have to write a note to encourage someone, take a moment to imagine the types of things you might say. You pull out a piece of paper and, you know, a, a card that came from, you know, the store, and you're going to write it and send it in the mail. What are the kinds of things that come to your mind as you think about uh, sending words to someone that would hopefully lead to them delighting in life a little bit more, having a little bit more encouragement to go about their day? Maybe you've received some of these. I've, I've been blessed a handful of times to receive a note of encouragement that wasn't expected from someone that just said, you know, I, I appreciate you and, and I love you for this, that, or the other reason, and, and keep going. The Lord is good. Something like that. Well, this morning, we're going to do a broad overview of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book from the Old Testament. Uh, I see at least a couple people laughing because if you're familiar with the book at all, you're probably thinking, this cannot possibly be encouraging. Have you read this book? There we go. A few laughs means that at least a couple of you are familiar. If you're not familiar, don't worry. No, there's, there's no judgment if you haven't read, read Ecclesiastes recently. Um, but the laughters are coming from people that are familiar with the book. No, it's, it, it can be a hard place to find encouragement from. But I've titled this morning's sermon, Words of Delight. Because as we'll see as we jump into the text, we're going to start at the end, actually. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the author tells us exactly why he has written this to us. And that will help us to understand its message. So it says this, Beside being wise, the preacher, this is the, the author of the book, goes by the preacher, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. He says he arranged them with great care. He took the time not just to say true things, but to actually put them together and to package them away almost poetically that it would stick better. Right? It's, it's the difference between throwing ingredients at someone and actually putting those ingredients together into a meal that's, that's tolerable. There's care to how he has presented his, his work. And he says this, that he has sought to find words of delight. He sought to find words of delight. And then the next thing he says is, uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, that's actually kind of interesting because it's actually relatively easy to write encouraging words to someone. What's tough sometimes in the broken world that we live in is writing words that are both delightful and at the same time true. Because if someone doesn't get the promotion that they wanted, you can pat them on the back and say, you'll get it next time. But that might not be true. If someone has a hard day, you can tell them, I'm sure tomorrow will be better. But that might not be true. You can use flattery and you can use false promises to offer delight to people. But offering both delight and encouragement and words of truth at the same time can be difficult. And this author will have none of one without the other. 
He says that the wise words are, are like goads. It's a, an instrument that actually causes pain at first. To strike an animal to make it go in the way that it needs to go because the shepherd knows best and the animal's going to end up doing something you know, that's going to get itself hurt. It's painful, but it's good for you. So as we begin our, our, our flyover of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, it should ring in our ears that as we go to the end, the author tells us the reason I wrote this was for your delight. Now, I won't actually make you raise your hand to indicate this, but ask yourself this morning, could you use a word of delight? I could. What are those words of delight? I would say primarily three things. You can almost think of each one of these as a musical chord that, that, that puts together the song of Ecclesiastes. Chord number one is this. You are going to die. You will not be remembered, and your entire life will have amounted to next to nothing. All of life, including all of its best things, is actually vanity. It's but a vapor. It's like smoke that's blown out from a candle, and if you try to grab it, you just look like a fool. Encouraged, right? Let me show you a couple of examples of where this chord shows up in the book. In chapter 1, it begins, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes. The earth remains forever. The sun rises... The sun goes down and hastens right back to the place where it rises. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things that are yet to be among those who come after. It reminds me of the old Pink Floyd song, Time, right? It's, it almost seems like it's a reflection of this. The sun is the, day, the, sun is the same, it's a different day, but you're older. Uh, and the sun is coming back up to chase you and come up behind you again. Butchered the lyrics. Sorry, I don't have them memorized. We see just further down in chapter 2 that the author begins to explain. I won't show you these parts in detail, but he describes how he decided to seek out wisdom. And he became wiser than anyone. Do you know what his verdict was after he gained all wisdom that could be gained in the world? He said it's vanity. He then describes how he set himself off to find pleasures, all the pleasures that he wanted. And then his verdict at the end of enjoying all of life's pleasures was it's vanity. And so we read in chapter two, verse nine, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I spent ten and a half hours yesterday, and it wasn't my only day on this project, building a fence. I was exhausted. I was proud. And I come to this text, and he basically says, 
Why? The wood, pressure treated though it is, will one day rot. At the end of it, I went inside and enjoyed one of my favorite dishes. It was left over from the night before, but one of my wife and I's favorite dishes is a salmon with some pineapple and jalapenos on it with a glaze that's made out of maple syrup and Dijon mustard. It's my favorite. Pour it over rice. So good. I had the pleasure of a fantastic dinner after a hard day's work. I'm hungry now. Imagine getting everything that you've ever wanted. Imagining, imagine living the life of the person that you now envy. Wisdom, money, pleasures. And then playing with that life for five to ten minutes and going, is that it? I still find myself dissatisfied. Because that's what the preacher says. The preacher says, I have been to the end of the trail of having wisdom with which to work and understand the world. And I've come back down that mountain that you're trying to get up. And I'm telling you, there's actually not as much up there as you think. And then he says, and and that mountain over there, pleasure, I've been further up that mountain than any of you could ever aspire to get to. I'm here to tell you there's not as much up there as you might think. And so in chapter 3, he says this in verse 17, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me because all is vanity and a striving after wind. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Have any of you been unable to sleep because of anxiety ever in your life? The author of Ecclesiastes understands what it means that even when you rest at night, you don't rest. And he concludes, the whole project is vanity. In chapters 1 and 2, he uses this word translated often as vanity 12 times. It actually literally means vapor. That's the actual Hebrew word. It's vapor. But vanity is a helpful, kind of meaningful translation of it. So I'm sorry to uh, disappoint you. I promised words of delight. I don't think the look on your faces says that I've achieved that end just yet by giving you nothing but bad news for 10 minutes. But he tells us in two chapters that the world has been going on fine without you for a long time. And when your body is put six feet underground, the world will keep going just fine, regardless of your absence. It will not spin in the slightest bit differently because of the fact that you lived. Oh, and by the way, enjoy your life, I suppose, but neither wisdom, work, nor pleasures will ever satisfy you. They will never heal the ache that you're longing for. And these sour notes, along with a number of others that I I won't dive into in detail, resound throughout the rest of the book. It's not as if Ecclesiastes begins two chapters of tough love and then it just gets flowery for the rest. Throughout the entire rest of the book, you get 19 more times. He says vanity is all of the different parts of life. He describes in detail some of the the worst injustices and wickedness of mankind to his neighbor. 
and laments it. He, he speaks of the perishing of the righteous and the prospering of the wicked. And how, how is it that the wicked always seem to have power and, and the good never seem to be able to have the power to do the things that they would do? He speaks of the, the just simple unfairness of things. I'm sure that we're going to witness some of that over the course of the next couple of weeks with the Olympics. We know who some of the best are, and yet anybody can choke at the wrong time. He says that sometimes the fastest one doesn't win the race. Sometimes the smartest doesn't have the most success. Sometimes the strongest person doesn't win the fight because in our translations, it says chance happens to all people. But actually in the Hebrew, it says happenings happen. How's that for a bumper sticker? (laughs) Happenings happen. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is easy to see it as discouraging. But I find it encouraging, at least in this moment. The older I get, the more I struggle to connect with people who can't connect to the difficult parts of my life. Now, my life is not just a long tale of woe with no good things in it. But it's also not just a long tale of flowery good things that doesn't have its sufferings. When I read the book of Ecclesiastes, I read the words of someone who I think actually understands me. There are very few things more frustrating than having someone try to encourage you when you're having a bad day, when they have no earthly real idea, (laughs) right? And even, you can't judge them, right? You don't even feel like you're not even mad at them because it's not their fault that they haven't suffered in some way. You don't necessarily wish that they would have suffered in the same way that you had so that you could connect better. You just understand that the words don't have quite as much gravity when you're, when you're starting to struggle to think that they really know the sadness that you're dealing with. When we read Ecclesiastes, I think I can say that no matter what difficulties and sufferings you have encountered in your life, the author of Ecclesiastes has at least witnessed them, if not experienced them. It seems like right now, though, it's been written by the 18-year-old who's like just come home for Christmas break after one semester in college. Right? He took Russian literature, intro to philosophy, and a political science class, and he just comes home and he's like, everything is bad, life is bad, the world is bad, America's bad, Russia's bad, everybody in between is bad, all of life is vanity, the end, it's the worst family Christmas conversation ever. Right? You, you, you make dinner and like, you know, the mom says, aren't you so glad? Like they're close to finishing the widening of 64. Are you able to get home like so much better? And the kid's just like eating his food, you know? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, how great is it that people can get from one miserable part of their useless lives in a, in a bigger hurry than they could before past the cranberry sauce, you know, like <laughs> mom's just like, this is awful. Like don't send him back. Some even accuse Ecclesiastes to be nihilistic, like a view of the world that just says nothing is worth effort or concern, the end is rubbish, so don't try, which is a way of thinking about life that does not mesh with Christianity. And even though it's a convincing angle at first, I promise you we'll very soon see that this charge doesn't hold. This is a strange song. It's actually just like the song that we sang a minute ago. It begins with a minor chord. Minor chords sound sad and depressing. And it, even if the key of the song, the major chord of the song is, is in a major, it's, it's delightful and happy and resolved, you can start a song on a minor chord, even if the whole song is in a major key. And I think that's what the author of Ecclesiastes does. So chord number one is a big minor chord. It just says, life's short, 
It's soon going to be over. Most people aren't famous. I, don't, I can't tell you the first name of any of my great-grandparents, and I doubt that my great-grandchildren will know my first name. But there are more than one chord in Ecclesiastes. Another chord that we read is this. I, can't, I have no way to put this into the right words with as much meaning as I think that they're in the Scripture. But here's chord number two. Delight yourself in every moment of every day of your life. Or maybe I could put chord number two another way. Rejoice. Have joy. I want you to enjoy your life. I know it seems like I'm kidding. (laughs) But I'm not. And more importantly, the preacher is not kidding. We're going to pick up actually where we left off in Ecclesiastes 2, 24. But back in verse 22, it says, we read this, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. And without any transition, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to find one to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So he turns a corner towards joy and says, do you have food? Don't just be utilitarian about it. Yes, your body needs calories. Enjoy that you're not starving. But he actually says, enjoy the taste of it. Enjoy your drink. Do you enjoy the people that are next to you? Enjoy the presence of friends and family. When you walk outside, not this time of year in Virginia, but you walk outside and the air hits you and it's delightful to feel. Enjoy that moment where you open the door and say, that's, that's fresh. Enjoy the moments of life that you have. And then even as he says to enjoy it, he caps it off once again with, but it's still striving after wind. Like, where are you going? So it's vanity, but we're commanded to enjoy it. I think I follow, but I need some more help. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, I perceive there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. If you are like me, you struggle with the idea that God is in the business of keeping you from enjoying anything, ever. We get the idea that, that God's, God's word to me is, if you're enjoying it, you're probably in sin. That is not God's word to his people. Now, does he tell us in a thousand places to be generous and to not just focus on your enjoyment? Yes. Does he tell us that the search for pleasure can go too far? Yes. But does he tell us to not be pleased with the good gifts he has given us in life? Absolutely not. That's a lie from the devil. The same author who understands the difficulties and woes of your life also says, enjoy it. Be joyful. He says to do good. 
We, we, we can already tell that, that the author of Ecclesiastes isn't a nihilist. You wouldn't be telling people to enjoy their food. You wouldn't be telling people to be joyful. You wouldn't be telling people to do good if doing good didn't do any good. Doing good does do good, so do good. Yeah, nobody's going to remember my name three generations from now, but that doesn't mean it totally doesn't matter. Completely and absolutely in every way. It just means that there's a sense in which it doesn't matter. Or at least it matters less than we often think of it to matter. In God's sovereignty, in the fall of 2019, our InterVarsity chapter actually went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'd be like, why on earth would a campus minister go through the book of Ecclesiastes with 20-year-olds? Shouldn't be like, you know, pepping them up and like, you know, the excited Christian life type of thing? Well, yeah, we do that. But I also understood that that 20-year-olds need to understand, particularly CNU students who are told all day, every day, to be significant. They need to be reminded that the word of the Lord says you're not and you never will be. And that's not bad news. It's good news for me to remember that the pressure is not on my shoulders to be worth remembering. There's someone else who took that burden. There's something actually unburdening about the reminder that my life is short and, and might not have the amount of meaning in the future after I'm gone that I would like to think it would. I'm actually not capable of living up to that pressure. Someone else was. Another example of the second chord of Ecclesiastes being that you should take joy in your life. He says, Behold, in chapter 5, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So we're told to enjoy your wealth and your pleasure. And we're also told to do good. Well, that that jives with the rest of Scripture. We're told that it's not wrong to enjoy the gifts that God's given you. And yet we're also supposed to be constantly focused on our neighbors and how can we be a blessing to other people. I like that it says in verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. One person said that, that, that you don't need to think less of yourself. You just need to think of yourself less in order to find happiness and, and some satisfaction. And I think verse 20 rings that way to me. If, if I'm focused and occupied with joy in my heart on whatever thing God has put in front of me, then I'll be remembering myself. I'll be thinking of myself less and simply just being myself. Another example, in 8.15 he says, I love, I love this language. So seldom do we say this to our kids. So seldom do we think God says this to us. But this is God's word to you this morning. I commend joy. I prescribe joy. How awesome would that be to go to the doctor with your broken whatever and they say, what will fix this is go out the door and and have joy. Most of the time we get told go home and drink this nasty medicine or go home and like don't do anything fun for X number of days or, you know, it's never fun getting the doctors, you know, fixed to things. What if the prescription was go and find joy? 
Do you know that that is God's word to you? I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God's given him under the sun. And a last example, one commentator even suggests this is the heart and center of Ecclesiastes in chapter 9. Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. How many of us think of God approving what we do very often? I mean, of course, there's a sense that he doesn't sometimes. When we do things that he is commanded not to, he does not approve of those things. When he finds my heart set on on pleasures in a way that I idolize them and I think that I can find more satisfaction there than I can find in God himself, he doesn't approve of that posture of my heart. But the author is saying... God, God approves of your life. Do you, do you have lunch plans for this afternoon? I hope, I hope so. I hope you're able to make them soon. God approves of that. God approves of you living the life that he's given you to live. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil which you toil under the sun. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In in the land of the dead. Even in the midst of go and enjoy life, he says, it's vain. Your life is vain. But enjoy it. It's vain. But enjoy it. There's, There's no life in the land of the dead. So enjoy life while you have life. Yeah, sure, one day you'll be dead. He's like constantly blending the bitterness and the sweet, right? It took me a long time to appreciate sweet and salty things. Like the first time I had like chocolate that also had like salt on it or like chocolate covered pretzels and stuff. I was like, this is not right. Give me chocolate or give me pretzels, but don't try to give me both at the same time. The author of Ecclesiastes understands how to blend salt and sugar because we want words of delight that are also not void of truth. The author of Ecclesiastes does not give you empty-handed hallmark encouragements. He gives you real-life ability to go and find joy. Delight yourself in your life. We finally get to a major chord after that first minor. What's the third significant chord that we see in this book of Ecclesiastes? It's this one. God will put it right. God will one day put it all right. Back in the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, he speaks of wickedness being in the place of righteousness and says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every manner and every work. The third significant thing that the author of Ecclesiastes gets to occasionally throughout the book is this constant reminder that while not now things are all right, it is certain. It's not a hope. This isn't pipe dreams. This isn't, I hope your day gets better. It's an absolute certainty. There will come a time in our history, in our in space time that we live in, where God will step his foot in and say, enough 
In all of the places where there's wickedness and brokenness and injustice and pain and suffering, he will say, it ends today. Now, right now, that, that hasn't happened. My daughter desperately wanted to come to see her friends at the church. My son wanted to come, and, and, but my faith hasn't felt well the past couple days. There's pain and sorrow there. I had somebody build a fence for me the other day, and frankly, it's the worst piece of workmanship I've ever seen in my life. And I'm, I was sick to my stomach with anxiety about having to deal with the contractor and try and get it straight. Because it's not okay to leave it as it is. And right as I was in the middle of, of dealing with all my woes, Beth and I were yesterday morning having coffee on our front porch at like 7 a.m. And one of our neighbors walked by, who walks by frequently, came up to just chit-chat a little bit. And ended up mentioning that two weeks ago he found out that his wife was terminally ill with cancer and has six months to two years to live. That is where we live now. And where we live now, one day my body will stop being able to work. And where we live now, things happen that aren't supposed to happen. Where we live now, there is wickedness in the place that righteousness is supposed to be. There is pain in the place where peace is supposed to be. But the third significant chord that the author of Ecclesiastes has written, remember, for the point of your joy, so that you would enjoy your life more, is this, this truth and this reminder. It is not all for naught. God will one day step in and execute justice. He will step in and fix all that is broken. And he begs us to hang our life on that truth. We see again in chapter 8, he says, the sentence against an evil deed isn't executed speedily, and so the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will they prolong their days like a shadow because God does not fear before God. Or sorry, because he does not fear before God. He says the wicked can prolong their days. They can bolster their place in the world right now. But there will come a day when it'll get flipped. And you will have been better to have feared God. And we're actually going to read a part of the end. Uh, the last couple of verses we didn't read at the beginning. So we're going to read from Ecclesiastes 12. And then I'll share some concluding comments. Again, this first part we read at the beginning. Besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, good or evil. The gavel comes down and he says, Fear God and obey him. God will one day put all things to right. He will one day bring every deed into judgment. You think of the things in our life that are not what they should be. God will put them right. Even if I can't imagine how it could be done, the scripture says God will put it right. We have another major chord, something we can delight in, 
being told there's a redeemer and there's a rescuer who's coming. He's more powerful than you and he's more powerful than the wicked. He is coming. But there's something a little bit strange here. At a couple other points in Ecclesiastes, he makes it very clear there is no one who is totally righteous. The idea of God coming to execute judgment is only good until I take an honest look at myself. In and of myself, I don't want to be around when God comes to judge the righteous and the wicked because I know that I'm not totally righteous. What are we to do about this? Where does Ecclesiastes leave us hanging and where does it get to? Earlier I said that if you, if you look at just the first court of Ecclesiastes, it's almost personified like a, you know, an 18-year-old who just had one semester of college and thinks they know everything and they just see life as drab and depressed because they took Russian literature. How would, I, how would I put the whole of Ecclesiastes into a person? What kind of a person would the whole of Ecclesiastes be? Jesus. Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the world and lose your soul? Jesus said, pleasures and wisdom and life itself can't satisfy. Jesus reminded people that their days were numbered. Frankly, on a couple of occasions, he reminded people that that number might be smaller than they presume that it is. And that they are powerless to prevent it. Jesus spoke the language of Ecclesiastes to his audience. Jesus lamented the wicked who held power, just like the author of Ecclesiastes does. He mocked and rebuked the religious leaders of his day who had power in Jerusalem and used it to their benefit and to the harm of the people. He mocked Pilate as he was going to be crucified. Jesus wept bitterly at the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes put into a whole person. Jesus turned water into wine one time just for the sake of the merriment of the guests at a wedding. Can we really get away thinking that God is just the cosmic anti-fun police? Jesus enjoyed countless meals with his disciples, his friends, and on occasion his enemies. Jesus agreed with Ecclesiastes that there is no one good but God alone. Jesus promised to be the one that would one day judge the world and put all things right. And Jesus made it explicitly clear how sinners like all of us can avoid the destruction on that day. It's not by working on our own effort to get ourselves into the category of righteous as opposed to wicked. Because there's a way that we can use those categories on earth. I would say I'm a righteous person. I don't break laws. I'm good to my wife. I'm not perfect, but in terms of looking at the world, I, would call, I, I should be able to say, I'm righteous. And, and when someone does me wrong, I should be able to say, that's wickedness. And I hope to maintain that status throughout the entirety of my life. But before God? No, 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 no. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one good but God alone. Jesus said, that by trusting in his sacrificial life and death and resurrection, we can have forgiveness of sins. God has given you words of delight in the most depressing book in all of the scriptures. In the same way that God has brought life out of the most depressing moment in all of history, when the only good person was murdered and lynched by a ruthless mob. God brings light out of dark places. 
And God wants to give you encouragement. And God understands that hallmark encouragements that just say, there, there, tomorrow will be better. When you know daggone good it well, it might not be. He says, I've got better encouragement than that. I promise you that I want you to enjoy your life. And I promise you that I'm going to come and I'm going to fix everything that is broken one day. And I promise you that I can and will forgive any sin by the blood of Christ. I commend joy to you. James River Community Church, in the name of God, I commend joy to you. Do not eat your food without salt just to make yourself suffer because you think that makes you more holy. Put salt on your food. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your vain life, your short life, your difficult life. And enjoy the pieces that are there to be enjoyed. And enjoy knowing it doesn't matter if no one remembers you a few generations from now. You don't want that pressure anyway. Hopefully you can enjoy this, and if you don't, please chat with me afterwards about it. Enjoy knowing that your sins were fixed to the cross of Christ if you put your trust in him. And then when God does come to put all things right and to execute perfect justice, even though I don't deserve to be treated as righteous, because of Jesus I will. And because of Jesus you can. And we will see him punish the wicked... And we will rejoice in his justice. So yes, the song begins on a minor chord. Life is tough and it's full of vanity. But it's filled with encouragements. Don't ever be discouraged by the book of Ecclesiastes on the whole again. Because it tells you over and over again, it's a command from God to enjoy your life. And to remember, God will fix every broken thing. There's no broken, ugly thing that you can look at right now that one day will not in some way, shape, or form have God's stamp of fixing put upon it. God, would you help us to believe these difficult words? As we look at the world, it, it seems impossible that it could be put right. Would you help us to take joy? Would you help us to stop uh, doing discredit to your name by, by thinking that you have called us to only experience misery? All of our lives are different, and some of us have more pleasures than others. God, I pray that you would help us to be a joy-filled people. Would you help the people of James River Community Church take delight in their food and in their drink and in their families and in their work and in their vocation and in their relationships, even in the vanity of it? Would they know that you have called us to this purpose, that you have given us life, this short life, for this purpose, that we would enjoy it and that we would enjoy you and that we would be a part of doing good to the world around us by speaking your gospel, by blessing people wherever we have the opportunity. And if ever we have a moment where it seems like there's, there's just no way to have hope, would we remember this, this clanging chord that we hear ringing throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, that you will one day come and fix and set right what is today not right. In Jesus' name, we long for that day. Give us grace to have the joy that you've called us to. Until then, amen.